This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today I want to uh, talk to you about your column. We, we have a few nominations at the Federal Reserve Board to talk about, as well as some movement at the SEC that you are uh, particularly upset about. So talk me through the new initiatives at the SEC first by, by Commissioner Allison Lee. Uh, she appears to be worried that private capital markets been raising a lot of money without any public oversight. So what's wrong with, with extending oversight to private companies from the SEC? Well, I mean, the first maxim that everybody starts with in this area is if it's not broke, don't fix it. So you start looking at these private markets and you ask her, apart from the fact that we don't know anything about them, which is also wrong, what is it that they've done that is bad? Is there some giant financial fraud which has left sophisticated investors in a lurch? Is it that you've taken companies private that have gone bankrupt and exploited uh, so that what happens is many innocent employees have been hurt? And there's absolutely nothing of any sort of that kind that's there. What is, in fact, the case is that these private corporations who do not operate under general government oversights are able to more efficiently organize their affairs than public corporations, which constantly have to worry about filing various kinds of forms of one kind or another. So let me give you one example that's not in the column. If you look at the compensation levels for chief executive officers and senior officials inside uh, closed corporations, it turns out that they're usually higher than they are with respect to public corporations. So is this a good or a bad thing? And I say in this kind of voluntary market, it's a good thing because what people have come to understand is that senior management teams set the entire course and direction of a firm and that the kinds of decisions that they make are in fact billion dollar decisions and that to the extent that you have high concentrations at the top of power, high concentrations of wealth by way of reward should be there. It also turns out that if these people do not go well, there are ways ways in which you could remove them from corporation, sometimes with a golden parachute, sometimes without. And there seems to be nothing wrong with the way this works in the sense that the investors in these firms are fine. Well, who are these investors, you might ask? Well, sometimes they're just rich individuals, and I have nothing against them. But sometimes it's people who lead various kinds of hedge funds, which have not so rich individuals in it. And what you do is you now have an agency system in which people of more modest means can participate through an agent in one of these private ventures. So the question that I start to ask myself is, what's there not to like about this kind of situation? And I don't see what it is. Then you start looking at the public corporations and you see what is it that they don't like about them? Well, one of the most conspicuous features that you see is that the number of private or number of publicly listed corporations on the American exchange is down from a fairly substantial peak 25, 30 years ago. It's ticked up after COVID a little bit, which is all to the good. Uh, but you ask yourself, why is it that as the economy expanded, these firms start to shrink in size? And the answer it turns out to be pretty simple. The cost of going public is now higher than it used to be because against the private gains that you get from selling out, you have to worry about the regulatory risks. Your buyers are going to take those things into account, reduce the compensation that they pay you for the shares, which will reduce your willingness to go public. 
Is this just a distributional question? Of course not. One of the things that's very common with respect to venture capital firms is that what you want to do is to align the investors with the level of risk profile that's most comfortable for them. So many people, pensioners and so forth, what they want is a respectable but steady return with relatively little volatility. What people who take a real powerful control over these things, they're better able to manage risk. So they're willing to take this kind of risk if they get adequate compensation on the upside. Well, how do you do this? What you have to do is firms become more stable. Going public is a perfectly good way of essentially transferring the shares to the people who have low risk preferences from people with a high risk preference. So the high risk preference people can go back into new ventures. They become, as it were, repeat players in this market. And the moment you make it more difficult to go public, what you do is you tend to break down this particular cycle. That means less innovation at home. And it also means that people are going to fly to capital markets in places like Hong Kong and Haifa or Tel Aviv uh, because they have more congenial environment. So uh, even before you start going to a point about you know, is there is there not supervision, uh, the good thing is the fact that there is no SEC supervision is a plus. And the reason you can't get the right policy judgment out of Miss Lee is she thinks that a favorable condition is in fact an unfavorable condition. So she's trying to treat a very healthy patient with some very ill-advised medicine. Richard, I think the argument often in favor of more regulation is generally an accusation of, of a market failure. But I have this feeling that most market failures, you know, in, in quotes, are, are, is basically just things happening that people don't like. And so we say, ah, oh, that's a market failure. Can you define that term for me? I mean, are there, are there, are there problems here that, that really deserve regulation? Well, not in this particular case. Yes, there are certainly cases of market failure that you have to worry about. You know, take the simplest situations. If you have insufficient protection in the private market against various forms of cartelization, you're going to get very powerful monopolies. So even at the height of laissez-faire and you had a contract in restrictive trade, it wasn't that you treated it like an ordinary contract for sale or for hire. What you did is you said that these things would not be enforceable in the hope that they would break down. Now, some cartels will break down of their own weight because people cheat. Others will not. And so what happens with the antitrust law, it's a shift in remedial emphasis from a case in which you hope the thing will break down to a case in which you're going to allow outsiders to sue or the government sue to stop it. And you know, so that is a kind of a market failure. The other major market failure, which also became very apparent in the last part of the 19th century, was the whole common pool problem. Uh, you started to see mass extinctions of buffaloes, fish, birds, and so forth. And the market failure, quite simply, is that if all these wildlife is in a common, anybody who shoots any item in that common will take all of the gain, but only a fraction of the loss from the inability of the fish or the other species to reproduce itself in nature. And so starting in the 1870s and so forth, you start seeing all sorts of regulations being put into place to limit the amount of catches that can take place in these various public arenas. There are good ways and bad ways in which to do this, but it's certainly a standard political kind of political theory game shows you that the breakdown means there's some intervention. 
There's a famous book by Manker Olson in 1965 called The Logic of Collective Action. And his was a very simple problem. He says it's a market failure if everybody can be better off with the imposition of taxes by receiving more in government benefits than they do by paying in. A system of purely voluntary payments will say, you go first and you pay yours and then I don't have to pay anything off. So he predicted there would be a large level of free riding for which you needed a compulsory tax. But here you do not have any collective action problems. You don't have public goods that you're trying to finance or natural resources that you're trying to protect, the monopolies that you're trying to control. So uh, within a sensible standard definition of a market failure, you don't see any evidence of that whatsoever. I think she knows that. She's a bossy lady. She thinks, in effect, that if we put these people to it, um, what we will do is now create a parity between public and private corporations. But you don't want that parity. What you want to do is essentially realize that in some cases, public corporations work rather well, given the nature of the shareholders and the goods that they produce. And in other cases, you want private corporations. So you want a larger suite. Then if you collapse one into the other, what you do is you reduce the variety in vehicles that are available for this kind of production. And when you do that, you hurt the overall economy. And it's just absolutely mind boggling. This woman will state this kind of thing and nowhere Nowhere, I mean, deal with the kinds of oppositions about this. What she's trying to do is to essentially delegitimate success in the equity markets. Let's turn over to the Federal Reserve, where President Biden has nominated a few new members for the board. Um, As you know, the Federal Reserve has this dual mandate, right? Pursue maximum employment, keep prices stable. I want to know if you think it's time to add a few more mandates, like, say, promoting climate policy. Or racial justice. Look, I think two are two, one too many. So I have actually written about this before. And I think, in effect, what happens is jobs are essentially micro issues at particular firms. And uh, monetary rates are universal theories which apply to every transaction currency. So I don't want any important microeconomic decision about either interest rates or money supply or whatever single measure that we start to put into place to deal with this to be contaminated by looking at some labor issue. How do you deal with the labor issues? Well, generally, it's a competitive market. And so what you do is you enforce contracts and stand aside. What's happened is we have an ungodly mess of laws put into play, minimum wage laws, anti-discrimination laws of one kind or another, parent leave laws, the whole thing. And these essentially impair market. So the way to get the labor side of this thing back is to engage in extensive forms of deregulation. On the other hand, you can't deregulate the amount of currency that you have. And, you know, I'm a great fan of John Taylor of the Hoover Institution, who essentially says, what you want to do is to stabilize the money supply in some predictable way so that price levels uncertainty is not something you have to figure out when you're dealing with standard kinds of contract. So the basic theory is if you don't know whether the money is going to be worth 4% more this year than it was last year or the other way around, somebody's going to demand some kind of clause, an adjustable interest rate up or down or whatever it is. These things are never quite right. And so you add another form of transactional complexity in, which reduces the willingness of people to engage in transactions. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever to create a gratuitous form of uncertainty, which is only going to depress prices and wages all the way up and down across the board. So you want that kind of stability. And for the labor markets, you want this other policy. Now, adding on climate policy is even crazy. 
crazy. First of all, I mean, if you take the Biden administration, uh, they are essentially, as far as I can tell, totally ignorant about any sensible thing that ought to be done with respect to the climate. They're constantly pushing various kinds of crisis management type situations. They're talking about it's code red for humanity and so on. You start looking at some of these numbers and what you realize is, you know, there's a lot of dispute about how much global temperatures are changing upward. Uh, there are many good signs that are ignored. The amount of greenery on the earth today is about 13% more than it was 30 odd years ago, mainly because of the increase in carbon dioxide, which is an aid to photosynthesis. So the first thing you want to ask yourself is you want to treat something as a problem if it's not a problem. And in fact, uh, it's probably not a problem to the level. Then you've got other things for direct organizations and voluntary situations. So you want to look at this problem. And do we want to take it over? First fact that we have to look at is if you want to regulate global emissions, what you have to do is conquer China. Because they're the big culprit with respect to this. Their output of coal is about 10 times the amount that we have. India is about two times. It turns out the British, not the British, the Chinese are really churning out a new coal mine every time. They thumb their nose at the rest of the world. If they're doing 90% and you are controlling 10%, the idea that by producing your 10% by 10% means you're getting 1% change, which is lost in the situation. So you've got exactly the wrong place to start to look. You need to have intellectual or international treaties. The second thing is you actually look at the performance of the American economy by the standard that they hold dearest, namely the reduction in carbon dioxide. What you do is you construct a little index, and what that index is supposed to say, here's how many units of goods we get for how many tons of carbon dioxide produced. And the United States is first in improving that overall level of efficiency. Because one of the things that happens is even though I may not think that these things are dominant issues, companies like Exxon do. And what they do is they put into place internal programs to try to control them. So Exxon has announced, oh, we want to be carbon neutral by 2050, 28 years from now. Okay, you do that. What they're going to do is they're going to put together supply chain regulations, use changes and so forth. And the way in which these things, Tom, work is there are 100 steps and the way in which you succeed is success is not to completely blow the system up in the Biden manner. It's to figure out how you could tweak each one of these things and get yourself a 1% improvement here, a 2% improvement there. And then if you actually do the numbers and you see if you've got 100 different variables and what you could do is you can increase their efficiency by 2%. Uh, what's going to happen is that the danger is now 0.98. What you're doing is 0.98 to the 100th power. And what you do is, in fact, you basically wiped out the pollution problem. So what we want to do is to encourage those sorts of things. And the last thing you're going to do is do this by the crazy government stuff. And my friend Mario Loyola, always a reliable person on these things, just noted that when it comes to these kinds of things, what happens is all the green policies are essentially completely counterproductive because what they do is they prevent the construction of new type arrangements, pipelines, factories, and so forth, which would allow you to take the old stuff and put them out. So before you start thinking about the government or the Fed as being a source of good, you have to recognize that some places they're just plain dumb in terms of the rigidity. Well, then you say, okay, first you want to clean up these organizations. First, you want to do the voluntary. What competence does the Fed have in dealing with these things? 
Absolutely not. So what you're talking about is effectively an effort to try and use industrial policy to take central banks to reallocate money from one sector to another. And this is a terribly dangerous situation because like all of these centralized programs, they have no information and they're going to get it wrong. So here's a simple kind of choice that you have to face. If you want to reduce carbon dioxide, uh, do you want to make fossil fuels more efficient or do you want to displace them uh, with the kinds of wind and solar policy? And there's no question as to which is the better situation. If you look at the history of fracking and similar technologies, their improvement levels over the last 10 or so years at the 80 to 90% level. And you just want to keep doing that because you have the huge base. Uh, if you try to expand wind and solar beyond the 15 to 20% that it might be able to achieve, there are going to be all sorts of collateral dislocations, as I always like to say, and I won't sing it, but uh, when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow, none of that stuff is going to be particularly good. They've never been able to solve the storage problem. And so if you want the Fed to get into it, it's going to be an open invitation to increase the total level of subsidies that are giving to losing technology. And so it's they're trying to do this. They've got preconceptions on all of these things as to what is right or wrong. And they're not prepared to argue this. There is so much stuff on the climate issues that take place today, which presuppose that there's some disasters. So the last two charts I saw, now just end on this note at this point, is one of them has to do with you know rising of the oceans. And it turns out in more places, the ocean is not rising relative to land. It's the other way around. But in some places, it's it's not a global phenomenon. In, in North and South America, it turns out the land mass is retreating a little bit. In Asia, Africa, and Europe, it tends to be increasing. Then you'll start looking at global global temperatures, and it turns out they're remarkably constant over the last 10 years. In fact, they're remarkably constant over the last 20 years in some sense. And they kind of go up and they zig and they zag. Well, if that's what's going on then, uh, certainly more localized responses may make a lot more sense. So if you're worried about the question of how you're going to protect certain kinds of rare plants in a given location, it may be more important to change the acidity of the water in that particular region uh, than it is to try and do these vast changes. And most people don't know this, but uh, there's a big difference between pollutions and pollutants. The broader definition says if you have a body of water, which is essentially salty, and the only things that can survive are those things that have that appropriate pH or composition, and you take a bunch of you know, clean, fresh water and dilute that stuff, that's not a pollutant. But in effect, what happens is it's a pollution type situation because you've changed the key variable. Knowing all of these things, what we have to do is to be a bit more careful how we do this. And you're not going to get any bank to do this. They try it right now with respect to the kinds of monies that they give to sovereign nations that have indigenous people problems and so forth. They get everything wrong as far as I can tell when I looked at this as a kind of a study. And we don't want to repeat that kind of mistake. A shoemaker should stick to his last. The Fed should have one mission, which is trying to keep price stability, and it should try to do that well. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. 
For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.